Welcome to the Truth Cisco Podcast, episode five. Today, I shall be running over the first day of the majors, briefly touching on DreamHack Valencia, and also addressing the issues of gambling and gambling sponsorship of CSGO, and having a little chat about cheating in the pro scene, specifically. Does it happen? So in the few days since I recorded uh, episode four, there's been a lot of CSGO that's been played. There's so much going on right now. Uh, We've had the DreamHack Valencia competition, which was won by NIP, Ninjas in Pajamas. They beat Red Reserve in the grand final. And the IGL of Red Reserve, the in-game leader, was Michael Ailey, who, if you're sort of new to the scene, used to be in NIP. So that was kind of cool to see them facing off against one of their old teammates and his new team, Red Reserve, are obviously pretty untried. I think this was their big major sort of first showing at a LAN. Actually, it might have been their first showing at a LAN, full stop. They put up a good fight in the first map on Mirage, uh, taking 10 rounds from NIP, but uh, were unsuccessful. And then NIP really shut them down on Cash, the second map, beating them 16-2. And Cash is obviously, uh, after NIP's 3-0 run on it, in ESL1 Cologne, in the group stages of ESL1 Cologne, shaping up to be NIP's best map. They're very convincing on it right now. And Rez and Draken really put in some solid performances. It's also nice to see Forrest stepping up, seemingly inspired by the performances of these young guys on the team. He's having some plays that are reminiscent of the Forest of old. And overall, it was a fun tournament. There wasn't too much at stake, but it is nice to... For NIP to sort of get their toe back in the water, uh, get their hair wet again, so to speak. And hopefully this is the beginning of a new era in a larger way this time. There's been new eras many times over the years with NIP as they've swapped out the fourth, uh, the fifth player. Now they've got two new people. Hopefully this is what they need. I was speaking in the last episode about their mentality and what that the psychology behind that might be. DreamHack Valencia and this win could possibly be the breaking of the dam for that psychological barrier. So we'll see. Now, we've also had the first day of the PGL Krakow Major of the Swiss stages. Um, Just a little sort of pricey if you are slightly new to the scene. The three favourites for this competition going into it are SK, FaZe and Astralis. Astralis won the last major back in January. But since then, they've been sort of quiet and SK have been the ones who've really been taking home a lot of the trophies in the meantime. FaZe have been runners-up in at least three grand finals, at least three large tournaments since the arrival of Nico. But they haven't managed to um, win anything too convincing and so far, SK seem to have been the more cohesive team. Now, in terms of SK, uh, the first time I really thought, okay, these guys are back uh, since the swapping out of FNX for Fur was at IAM Sydney, uh, and they beat FaZe in the grand final. And they really just outclassed them. There were some great moments where the individual players on FaZe put uh, SK sort of, put a scare in, in, in SK, but... The team cohesion that SK has right now just doesn't exist in other teams. Although there is a team who displayed some of that 
on this first day, and I'll get to them shortly. So SK are definitely the favourites going into it. Uh, in terms of phase, um, they do have a good record against Australis. Um, but I have a sneaking suspicion that their problems, actually we've talked about Carrigan and, and, and the fact that he might not be as strong a backbone uh, for his team as perhaps Glaive is, as definitely Fallen is. But I have a sneaking suspicion that their problem might be down to communication. Much has been made about the fact that these guys are from different countries. And look, that's a really appealing notion. The idea of a Mongol team that doesn't really have anything to do with nationality is kind of exciting because that's the world we live in. And a team's victory doesn't become about, oh, you know, we're Brazilian or we're Danish. It's nothing to do with nationality. It's purely about skills and how you show up to the server. But I'm not sure whether the communication is really there and we saw that on this first day we saw a deficiency of communication i'll get to their match shortly the backbone of this team really is rain and kiyoshima uh who are sort of they're not really the star players they're sort of more support players um but a lot of been made has been made about the, the star power of nico or the or the opening of alu i don't think they're really the the strongest part of of phase so anyway it remains to be seen whether phase can uh firm up these superstars around these two support players. Um, and the third favourites, obviously, are Australis, who have a major under their belt already this year. But we haven't seen much of them for the last few months. They skipped ESL1 Cologne, for instance, and whether or not that timeout is a good thing or not remains to be seen. Obviously, they'll have a bit of a tactical advantage over the other teams, especially teams like SK, who have been so visible over the past few months, whose demos they'll be able to absolutely pour over. And uh, the other teams obviously won't have as much info on Australis and what they're up to these days in terms of their tactics. But on the, on the other hand, the other teams have more momentum. SK has an insane amount of momentum right now and dominance. And I guess Australis's main issue may be pure mentality. They haven't won anything for a while. Is that winner's mentality going to be there as strong for them as it used to be? And so the next level of contenders... Uh, are sort of on a level playing field right now. I'd say G2, uh, Fnatic um, uh, are at a similar tier. They have great players. They've got some real legends in there. They haven't been winning enough tournaments. They haven't been placing high enough to consider them on the same level as those other three, but they've definitely got the potential to reach a semifinals or a grand finals here. Um, and obviously there's, there's VP who <laughs> show up sometimes and other times don't show up. Uh, and they've obviously been having a major slump. However, I will get to their match soon. They tend to rise to the occasion, and I think that's really a focus thing. If it's a big, big match, they have a history of rising to the occasion and playing to the level of their opponents. So you never know with VP. Anyway, I'm just going to go briefly over some of these matches. I think there's only a couple that are really worth paying attention to in this first day. So I'll give them a bit more time. First match was Mouse Sports versus Gambit. I think Zeus is a very interesting IGL. And uh, as he's one of the older IGLs on the scene, and as the IGLs get older too, I think we're beginning to see that they're a little more effective than uh, younger IGLs. Um, <clears throat> there's a second round uh, on the T side here that's interesting to watch um, for Gambit where they buy one AK, they force up one AK because Zeus got a couple of kills, so he's enough to buy one AK, and he gives it to his uh, <coughs> his highest fragger, and the rest of them just uh, don't buy anything, and they swap it around. So 
after the after the first player has had a few contact kills or engagements with the AK and, and maybe he's been tagged down a bit, he, he gives it to someone else and they take it to a different part of the map. And because of this, the CT side obviously think that they've forced. They think that Gambit has somehow forced everybody. Um, and then Gambit come back in the next round and everyone buys AKs except for Zeus, who obviously can't afford one now which happens to be more power than the CT side are able to buy, who still have SMGs thinking that they're going to be able to farm cash easily because, you know, the T side forced. So that's an interesting uh, little sort of mental game that Zeus was playing. Um, And it's something to consider, I think, when you have that one person who's done a bit of fragging in the last round, instead of waiting for them and and, uh, designating them as the person who's going to be, you know, affording the AWP when you guys have a buy round, there's uh, there's uh, buying that that AK and then juggling it amongst the team to create a false sense of a buy. Uh, maybe you can't do that on all maps. For instance, Mirage might be a bit harder where you can't sort of rotate as quickly or rotate the gun between people as quickly. Inferno is a much uh, smaller map and you can rotate players around it much more quickly than uh, maps like Mirage. But uh, it's an interesting tactic to have a look at. Uh, we had Fnatic versus Flipside. Fnatic took it. Um, not much to say there. I think the VP versus Vegas Squadron had the next interesting point of the day, which was finally some new tactics coming through. This was a this was a finally a match that, uh, as a VP fan, I could go, oh, okay, you actually have worked some new stuff out. Um, and I think if you're going to look at this match and you didn't watch it live, I would check out the POV of Snacks. I was watching him on GoTV, and he's got a very interesting way that he deals on the T side with Squeaky. On the which is which is the door into the A site, um, and what he does is he throws a HE at the door and then immediately throws a smoke. So the HE blows the squeaky door off, and then the smoke just lands just beyond it, which gives him a little entry into A site should he need, and it keeps the T side. Uh, sorry, sorry, it keeps the TC CT side. Uh, unable to sort of get too close to Squeaky Door because Snacks can sort of pick them off. He has a visibility advantage for that close little area around the Squeaky Door. Now, the biggest advantage to this tactic is that the CTs now have something to worry about because that smoke is dissipating, right? And when it's dissipating, there's like a clock that's ticking down. And when that's gone, there's going to be a visibility line where anyone from the T the side can pick off someone who's, say, outside of mini or who's um, crouched up on hut. So it just gives them an extra thing to worry about. And, and sometimes you'll see that Snacks just throws the smoke and then leaves it and goes off to ramp to join his team and leaves that smoke there as this kind of time bomb that the, the CT side have to sort of put someone to, 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 to sort of watch and babysit. And other times he just tries to peek around it or sits there and waits for it to dissipate and then to, you know, hope, hoping that the CT side will have moved on from then then and been distracted by other parts of his teammates. For instance, on one round, the other four players start moving outside and he just agitates in that area for a while. And when that smirk has dissipated, is able to get a few uh, of the cross angles from within, within Squeaky. So that's an interesting uh, tactical position to check out. VP beat Vegas Squadron, which was nice. They're obviously not a tier one team, but hopefully this gives them the confidence rolling into the next days. Uh, the next map was SK versus Penta, and Penta came close to beating SK um, with a long winning streak at the start. 
uh, until SK came back. It was looking a bit like the Space Soldiers SK matchup from ESL1 Cologne, which was a total upset, and Space Soldiers ended up beating SK. But SK did sort of manage to you know, clear the cobwebs out of their heads and realize, oh, no, no, hold on, we're much better than this. And uh, it looked to be a sort of a lost focus issue. And there have been comments from Fallen, the leader of SK, suggesting that they might have been a bit burnt out because they've been playing back-to-back tournaments. I think there's a, there's a danger of that, that sort of micro version of looking at one spot too long. There was a, a term that Freiburg had for it recently that they were talking about on the analyst desk, I think it was for Cologne, where you look at a spot too long, let's say you've got the AWP and you're just, you've got your crosshair on one particular angle and there's a little period of hypnosis where if someone peeks you, you react just that second too late just because your eyes have sort of rested. Um, and it could be that SK have been focused on playing the game so hard for so long that their focus is a little off, even though they feel like they've, they're there and they've got all the energy they're not quite as sharp as they may be. So that, to me, will, will, will be, I think, the big, the big question for SK. Can they retain that sort of laser-sharp focus they seem to have had? On, on paper, they should win this, but I think the mental game will be, will be the big question for them. Um, so the next game was FaZe versus Big, uh, <laughs> and I'm a FaZe fan uh, much to you know my own detriment because they're not... Uh, they're very own, they're very rarely satisfying to watch because of the potential they have and the the way they just don't sort of use that potential to the best of its ability. Now that's a, that's a clumsy way of saying I've been disappointed by them recently. Um, and they were playing versus Big on Inferno and they lost, which I don't think was really a surprise because Big had such a cohesive uh, idea and way of playing that was demonstrated in Cologne and uh, was demonstrated in the post-match interviews with God B, where they'd really put a huge amount of thought into the opponent they were playing and how to counter-strap that as a team, not just on individual plays. Um, and FaZe in this map really, really suffered from that lack of team cohesion that has been plaguing them. It's plagued them in the semifinals of ESL1. Uh, and it's been plaguing them for a while, as far as I'm concerned. I saw it in IEM Sydney, even though they had those uh, big hitters who did a lot of work for them and made a lot of plays for them. The moment those guys have lost confidence, the team has fallen apart, as far as I'm concerned. Carrigan, as I said before, doesn't really have a handle on his team the way some IGLs do, and obviously not the way God B does. And it means that Nico, for instance, is going to stupid peaks on the B site that open up open up the whole site when all he needs to do is play time. Um and as we were talking about last episode, we saw this at ESL1 Cologne where he was going for these sort of really careless rushes that kind of struck me. Uh, that, 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 that seemed quite similar to the sort of plays you might do at a Golden Over 3 level, you know, um, where you don't really have a relationship with the team. You're playing with a bunch of casuals. You don't know whether they're good or not yet. So you just go for the kills. You just go for the scores. Um, and when you don't get them, when you're expecting them, it's a big hit to your confidence. And unless you have the sort of IGL who can, you know, then take a firm leadership role and go, all right, this is where you need to play, there's not really any way to recover from that during the course of a match. So someone mentioned on Reddit that uh, if, you, if you're interested in watching this match and you haven't seen it, check out the POV of God B 
on Go TV for a masterclass in how to read your opponents. Um, and then I would check out the interview that he did post-match where he talks about the importance of knowing where Kiyoshima was at all times. Now, we've heard this from Gobby before. He's done a video about uh, Das 2, apparently. I haven't seen it, where he says, you know, the way to take A is really to force the rotational player over to the B site and then pincer A. And you could see that these guys had studied the demos from FaZe, realized that Kyo was the player who was rotating and worked out ways to force him to either go to A or B. And then once they knew they'd had him at one site, they could push on the corresponding site. I mean, were FaZe considering those sorts of tactics against Big? I think it's probably unlikely. Um, so check out his POV because... It's just masterful. And you can see it. You don't even have to check out his POV to see the way they played phase. They waited until the last 20 seconds for the first four or five rounds on the T side before they even made a move on any bomb side, which meant that on the sixth round, they could just rush somewhere and completely catch um, phase off guard. And from that moment, whether they rushed or waited, it didn't really matter because they'd completely confounded phase's expectations of them. Now, there's also another video uh, called Big, Abusing the Jump Bug Against Phase, and this is on YouTube. It's on Reddit. Uh, I'm sure you can find it if you Google it. It's a, well, whether it's a bug or not, it's been around since 2015, apparently. And uh, if you jump and hold control and then release midair or press crouch in midair, it's unclear to me. I've got to test it out tonight. But... uh, and and you're peeking over an area, let's say the white box on cash, you can see over it, but your opponent can't see over it. And there's there's a lot of footage of Big abusing this on the B site on Banana when they're holding CT in Inferno, where they're peeking over the little wall and FaZe can't see them at all, even though they have info on... They can see quite clearly who's coming up Banana. Um, Apparently, this is called the Legia Jump, because he does that a lot um and apparently it's been abused by people for a long time including phase themselves uh, and especially at cash on white box um apparently you can also do it on mirage when you're picking b apps but uh obviously not everyone was aware of this for instance uh dennis at fanatic has tweeted at valve to fix it calling it a joke uh which prompted pasha to reply that it's just pussy tricks now now, you know, now that I know this, I'm definitely going to be using it. Um, and until Valve fix it, I don't think we can blame the players. But it's very interesting to see how much Big used it against FaZe. And if FaZe had been aware of it as much as, you know, people say that they were, uh, they can't have been going up Banana as slowly as they were. Because if you knew someone was going to do that or could do that, you would have to smoke or flame that part of the banana out. You, you could not walk up that slowly. Um, so that's an interesting video to check out. And uh, it's something that you can exploit in your own MM matches until Valve fix it, if they do. I'm not sure whether it comes under the heading of a bug because it's been around for so long, but I guess it does. Because in the real world, that's obviously a physical impossibility. So then we had North versus Cloud9, Cloud9 won. We had Na'Vi versus G2, G2 won, although they got a bit scared at one point there. And then the day finished with Astralis versus Immortals, which was another near upset of one of the favourites coming to this tournament, uh, which just goes, kind of goes to show how close these top 10 teams are and how the the distance between these top 10 teams has closed really, really only in the last sort of six months. 
and a team like Immortals has just got a taste of victory, you know, and they've been really able to play with some of the top tier teams in a way that perhaps teams weren't able to do so maybe a year ago. And, and it's just made them extra hungry. It's, it's obvious. Um, it, it, you know, playing against teams like SK, taking a map off them here and there, uh, and like FaZe, it's just allowed them to level up in the last six months, really. And Astralis, who's been sort of out of it a bit, might have been taken by surprise in this way. So that's it for day one of the PGL Krakow Major. It was... Uh, there was some upsets. Um, and I guess if you'd bet on FaZe, you might be disappointed right now, but everyone else seemed to generally follow the narrative that we were expecting. Whether or not I will do an episode just about day two or sort of lump it in with day three and four uh, remains to be seen. It's a matter of time for me right now. I may simply do one just after the whole major. So next up, I want to just have a little chat and a think about sponsorship and gambling in CSGO. And this probably applies to all esports, but I really only know CSGO. And the reason I want to do this is because at ESL1 Cologne, for the first time I noticed that odds that gambling sites were putting on the outcomes of various matches were being brought up on the screen and discussed pre and post match by the analysts. And there was an omnipresent logo of Betway, who were the gambling sponsors, the gambling company that was sponsoring this tournament. And it struck me as interesting. And I thought it might be interesting to just have a look at what's happened in Australia over the last 10 years. Because, and the reason, the reason is Australia is the biggest gambling nation in the world per capita. I think we spend something like $3,100 or something each uh, every year, which in some ways far outstrips sort of the next highest gambling country per capita. I think we have more poker machines in Queensland than the entire world combined or something. It's, it's kind of insane. Uh, so we're, we're probably the best case study in a way um, in terms of how bad or how prevalent this scene can become. And in 2008, there was legislation that our government made that allowed bookmakers who were licensed in one jurisdiction to advertise their services in another, which essentially means that these super bookmakers can come about who raise huge capital, who flood the media with advertising across um sort of every single platform, not only during televised live events. Um, and they flooded across the nation on this sort of unprecedented scale, which means that you start to get a whole lot more people who had previously watched these sporting matches f- purely for the, the enjoyment of following the sport who were now being converted into gamblers. And you also got people who were coming into the sport who weren't interested in the sport at all beyond uh, you know, sort of whatever sort of interest they had in gambling. Now, nine years later, since this legislation came in, Australia has up to a 20% rise in young men who are aged 18 to 34, i.e., you know, one of the main counter-strike demographics. You have a 20% rise in these guys entering treatment for gambling addiction. These are most often men with uh, professional skills um, and access to money. I'm quoting an ABC article here. And gambling addictions, as we know, exacerbates and causes severe anxiety and depression. And, and it can ruin lives. Um, and, and so one of the biggest 
changes that we've seen in some of our huge sports institutions, like the National Rugby League, um, is a massive amount of sponsorship and money coming in from these sites. Like the NRL has this commercial deal with Sportsbet that's worth $60 million. And the Australian Football League, uh, which is... Uh, they administer a sport that if you're not from Australia, you probably don't really know, but we call AFL. They have a $10 million a year deal with Crown Bet, who are another gambling corporation. Half of our rugby teams have a corporate bookmaker as a major sponsor. And so they're all getting revenue based on betting revenue. Now, I have a reaction to this, and especially seeing it in Counter-Strike, which is so nascent in a way. You know, it's not even... <laughs> it's growing and, and people know about it. But it's not like it's as big as, say, soccer yet. And it's already being, ugh, like, it's already getting so intertwined with this gambling culture. And the reason I have a huge reaction to this is because, like, doesn't it seem really evident this, that this is a massive conflict of interest? Just a blatant conflict of interest. A corporation, right, whose motive is profit that is based on the outcome of a team who also own the team, who can control the outcome. It's a, conf- it's a clear conflict of interest. They're going to make money depending on whether that team wins or lose, loses a match, but they own the team. Now, NIP, I don't know if this is recent, but I only noticed this recently, are sponsored by Betway as well. And they used to be sponsored by Skin Arena. So they're no strangers to being sponsored by these gambling sites and corporations. They've got some... Uh, videos they've even done for Betway working on a, you know, playing an, an AIM map. SK are sponsored by Skins Jar. So they're no strangers to it as well. And look, this is not, it's not as if I'm sort of the first person to be concerned about this. Valve spoke out against the promotion of gambling in association with their matches in uh, 2015. Uh, ESEA cracked down on it. But all that was, it was teams just not being able to promote the betting site sponsor in their name. I haven't really heard of anybody kind of questioning the fact that these teams are being sponsored by people who are making money in this way. And look, it's not like it's not like we don't have plenty of examples from history to demonstrate the fact that people will not throw games if the profit motive is there. I mean, speaking of the Australian National Rugby League, there's been uh, allegations of match fixing even the last couple of years like people are going to do it if the money's there and unfortunately we have to regulate ourselves in some way now look this kind of comes back to i guess eventually the fact that i am against gambling in a way and let me just sort of let me, let me couch that uh for you in case you're sitting there going well you know i enjoy having a bit of fun putting some money on a match or putting a, a skin, you know, on a roulette wheel or whatever, and it gives me a bit of fun. And if that's money that I don't really need, why should I be persecuted for that? Well, I don't think you should be persecuted, and I don't think it should be illegal. But the way it's promoted, I think, needs to be regulated because it's normalized in a way. Um, and it's promoted and exposed to young people, and I'm talking about under-18s, who haven't actually developed the ability to regulate their own sense of risk and adrenaline. And that's not my opinion. That's science. That's Their brains haven't developed that uh, self-censoring. Uh, and it's like the way they, they used to promote cigarettes here, which was promoted to everybody and as something that, you know, you would do if you were cool. As we've sort of grown up a bit, we've realized that that 
unfortunately, gets people interested who might not be otherwise. Um, and why not, you know, stop them from being fooled by that advertising? When it's promoted as well, it's always promoted as basically, you know, gamble responsibly. And people who are for it or who are defending it say, well, just gamble responsibly. If you gambled responsibly, this wouldn't happen. Now, this, ne- this argument's never hold any wash with me because it's a contradiction in terms. Gambling by its definition is irresponsible because the odds of winning money is never in your favor. Whether, we're, whether it's a casino or the lottery or these gambling sites or these case opening sites, right? And, and this, is, this is quite apart from the fact that often these sites are ripping you off, as Richard Lewis has, has found out recently, which you know, anyone with a brain might have <laughs> guessed as well. But by its definition, gambling is irresponsible because the odds of winning money is never in your favor. It's like saying, be rationally irrational. And so that's how I feel about gambling. And I'm going to be watching whether or not this gambling thing becomes more ingrained with Counter-Strike. Because I have to say, if it does, it's going to become a problem. Not only for the corporations and the players, but also the amateur players. And anyone in this association, in any of the associations who have a conscience. And I would say as well, one of the things we can do as part of the community on uh, Reddit and... um you know, Twitter and all that kind of thing, is just place a bit of pressure on the players, on the organizations, uh, so that they're always being held accountable because accountable they are. They're reaching hundreds of thousands, millions of people. They're making a huge amount of money. um, And a lot of these people are placing a lot of faith and trust in them and uh, looking up to them as mentors. And they're setting the moral tone, really, for a huge part of you know, some people's lives. And uh, so we need to hold them morally accountable. If we're against the promotion of gambling and the normalization of gambling, we got to let them know, whether that's on Reddit, on their Twitter accounts. Um, And uh, I'll be doing my part. And if you feel the same way as I do, I hope you're doing yours. Finally, uh, because we're going into a bit of the vice area of Counter-Strike right now, let's talk about cheating. And cheating in pros, in the pro scene in particular. Um, as I've mentioned before, I've seen those sort of flusher videos. I've seen the Kelly or Quickly or Quickly videos. Um, I didn't really have an opinion about it because I don't feel like I know enough about the context and yada yada. I think this has always been an argument for both sides of, of these sort of online YouTube videos. However... I did recently see a video by a guy called The Concept. If you've seen these videos, you'll know immediately what I'm talking about. He released a video on YouTube about aimbotting, where he compared the tiny micro-movements of an aimbot, an aim program, with some of the micro-movements of various players, like Shroud, Simple, Flusher, and Cold Zero. And I have to say, it was pretty shocking. Um... There wasn't a huge amount of context to the analysis that he was doing, but it was very in-depth and he did a lot of slowed down clips, clip analysis where we could really track the crosshairs of the different players and compare the sort of somewhat mechanical, predictable movements and tuggings that an aimbot would do that players, I assume, don't normally do. And... I guess, like most of you, 
I probably think, well, it's ridiculous. How could all of those people cheat? How could Shroud cheat? How could Simple cheat? How could Flusher cheat? How could Cold Zero cheat? These guys are living the dream. They're being paid huge amounts of money to fly around the world, play a video game that they love with, more often than not, their best mates. Why would you risk that? Now, there's a simple response to that, uh, and it's somewhat rhetorical in its nature, but you'll understand what I mean when I say the answer is two words, Lance Armstrong. We know that human beings are like that, and we've had probably the worst example of our lifetime only get busted a couple of years ago. Um, Now, I have a mate. uh, He's called Junglist. You may have known him from Good Game. He's also a games journalist of great renown these days. And he was a Counter-Strike pro from 1.6. And when I was telling him about these videos, because I'm still, you know, I'm still, I don't really feel like I know enough to agree necessarily with this guy, the concept. But when I was telling junglist about this he said that it's possible that the packaging and sampling of information that are captured in these demos uh is actually what i'm seeing or what is being analyzed in the irrational or the weird movements that these players and their crosshairs are sometimes taking so i don't really understand what he means exactly i kind of get it in theory but technically i wouldn't be able to explain it that well but i'll I'll give it a little shot basically Counter-Strike, obviously, because it's data. It's not (laughs) real-world footage. Everything is recorded in keyframes, right? If it wasn't, then there'd be too much. The the, the games would be huge in terms of information they they chewed up. So that means that there's a sort of an abbreviation in terms of the movement. Uh, So if if a player strafes from left to right, there's a certain amount of keyframes that are telling the computer, this is where this guy is moving. Um, and that then creates a pathway for the character model that'll go between the animations. Animations, But that's not actually following like real-world motion or physics. It's purely following a dotted line, which means that it may reach that dotted line uh, in a, a sort of unnatural way. Um, that's sort of the best explanation I can give for what he was saying might result in anomalies between what you watch and what a player is actually doing. Um, I kind of get that that might be the case. I feel like I have to know more about this to really give uh, an adequate um, verdict. But I would say if you're interested in this kind of thing, check out this guy, the concept, um, Google concept, CSGO Pro cheating. He's just released a video that focuses just on Shroud. And it sours Cloud Nine's recent um, form with Shroud basically killing it uh, at ESL One Cologne. For me, a bit like it does a bit. I don't really know if this guy's on the money, but if it's true, then fuck that guy. Um, I would say there's another guy, another user on there called Grimble. Uh, you spell that capital G R One M B Three L. He's got some YouTube videos on there about cheating as well and in particular a video where he plugs a mouse in with a csgo hack just in the usb uh and all that comes up is this tiny like flash of a window that opens and closes itself and then csgo's back on and voila he's got a wall hack and i had no idea that that was how quickly a cheat could sort of happen or be installed or work 
Um, and it led me down a bit of a rabbit hole, I have to say, where people were accusing like SK of keeping cheats somehow in their shoes because why aren't they wearing their shoes the whole time and why do they put them on? You know, uh, at the end of every game, are they pulling a little USB thing out of their computer and putting it into their shoes? And, oh, here's footage of, like, Simple pulling something out of the computer after this game. And I just don't know now. I just don't know. I'm really confused about about a lot of this because while the arguments that these guys are making are so compelling, I just don't want to believe it. Um... So I guess I'm going to have to do a little bit more research to make up my mind. Let me know if you have an opinion. You think I'm a complete, you know, conspiracy theorist sucker? Let me know. Or you think that I'm way too naive about this protein thing and, and I idealize these guys too much? Let me know. Uh, the email is thetruthcsgopodcast at gmail.com. That's all one word. Or you can find me on Twitter at truthcsgopodcast. Uh, until next time. Thank you. Thank you.